Hello. Does, does the mic work? Can you hear me well? Yeah. Okay. So good afternoon, everyone. Um, please take your seat, uh, those who are still uh, having a sandwich. Uh, so my name is Gregory Kless. I'm a researcher at Bruegel. Uh, it's my pleasure uh, to host you today and to be the, the chair of this, uh, of this event. Uh, on behalf of Bruegel, let me first thank uh, the audience for being here and, uh, and our speakers for accepting our invitation uh, to come to speak about uh, labor market reforms in Europe and, uh, and the flexibility uh, model. Um, so before I introduce all the speakers and we start uh, the discussion, uh, I also want to highlight that this event um, is a collaboration with the Think Tank Demos, a British think tank. Um, with which we are going to organize a series of events on the topic of uh, labor market transformation and the economic uh, uh, impact, but also the social impact, because Demos is uh, focusing more on political science and sociology, so we'll, uh, we'll discuss that in this event, but also in, uh, in the next event that we'll organize in London. Um, Demos is represented here today by uh, Philip Collins, uh, who is here on my left, who is the chair of the board of trustees of, of Demos. Uh, I'll, I'll just give you the, the floor for, for a minute so that you can explain to our audience what is Demos exactly and, 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 and what you do, okay? Lovely, thank you very much. Um, you will all have noticed this is a very important day for the European U uh, Union's relationship with the United Kingdom. And um, I speak, of course, of this seminar and the relationship between Demos and Bruegel, which we are delighted um, about. And as, as you say, we're very keen to ensure that it persists. Um, the, United Kingdom may well be in the departure lounge of this institution, but many of the trends that we observe uh, back at home, the labour market trends, are independent of political structures. They're, of course, influenced by them, but they are—they have a, a, an existence quite separate from political structures. And so we're very keen to explore the differences and the similarities between our experience and the experience elsewhere. Um, Demos has been traditionally, for the 25 years of its existence, a domestic think tank, but we are very keen to change that, and under the guidance of Sophie Gaston, who uh, leads our international program, uh, we are belatedly looking out to the world. Um, it's extraordinary that we're doing so just at the moment. The, the, the United Kingdom seems to be looking inward at itself. Uh, we will, in our own little way, uh, try and redress that balance. Thank you very much, uh, Phil. It's really a pleasure for us to, to have you here and to have this collaboration with Demos. Thank you also, Sophie and, and Giuseppe, for uh, organizing this collaboration. Um, so basically, the, the idea of, uh, of today's event is to discuss uh, the recent wave of, of labor market reforms that have taken place in Europe since the crisis for many countries like France, Italy, but also before the crisis for Germany. Um, and basically, we, what we try to do is to share some country experience about the, the reforms. Uh, but also how the post-reform uh, labor market uh, fit with the flex security uh, model, uh, because the objective is not only to reduce unemployment, but also to change uh, the labor uh, markets of, of the European countries uh, in order to, to have a more flexible, but also a, a more secure uh, uh, market for, for, for workers. So we'll try to see um, how this reform took place, what are the outcome of those reforms, and what will happen uh, in the future for the countries that are still in the process of, of, of reforming their labor markets. Uh, so we have a great panel of, uh, of, um, of speakers today to discuss this, coming from uh, all over Europe to have a point of view from, from each country's perspective. Um, w the order will be the following. So first, we'll have uh, Garon Spino, who is uh, an advisor in the cabinet of the Minister 
uh, of labor in France, who is replacing uh, Antoine Fouché, who was supposed to be here today, uh, but uh, was not available at the end. Uh, but we are really glad to have uh, Garance with us. Uh, then we'll have uh, Marco Leonardi, who is a um, uh, full uh, professor of economics at the University of Milan, but also an economic advisor at the Prime uh, Minister's Office uh, in Italy. Um, then we'll have Werner A. Korst, sorry for your name, I try to pronounce it well, who is the Director of, of Labour Policy uh, for Europe at ESA, so the Institute for Labour Economics. Um, then Phil, uh, so uh, as I said, the, the chair of Demos Board of Trustees, but also a writer at the Times, uh, will speak um, about the, the labour market in, in the UK. And, and finally, last but not least, we'll have uh, Maria Jebsen, who is an pro associate professor in labour economics at the ULB and, uh, and director of research department at the European Trade Union Institute, who will give us like our views, a broader views, like a, a comparative approach views on all those European um, uh, market reforms and how they fit with this flexicurity uh, model that has been uh, uh, first uh, created in your home country, uh, Denmark. Uh, so uh, let me uh, start, uh, give the floor immediately to, to Garance, who will explain us uh, what's happening in France at the moment. Thank you very much, uh, Grégory. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you very much for the invitation. We are very happy to be here and to talk about this very important uh, flex security uh, issue. Uh, first, uh, I need to uh, apologize because, as you said, Antoine Fouché, so the, the head of cabinet of the minister, was supposed to be with you today, and for some reason, in very uh, unexpected uh, national uh, circumstances, is not able to do it uh, today. He's very sorry for that, and for the same reasons, I will have to leave you uh, a bit earlier uh, before the end of the session, so I'm very, very sorry for that. Um, I'm very happy to, to, to be here because, basically, what we are trying to achieve in France uh, since um, last May is basically uh, the design of a French-style flexicurity model. Um, that means, I mean, the minister always uh, uses the same formula, uh, which I give you now, which is unleash energies, protect people, and create jobs. So basically, the idea is to try to uh, strike the right balance between social and economic objectives, on one hand, give business more flexibility to, so that it can grow and create jobs, and the other, on the other hand, uh, try to secure career paths so that people are protected, more agile, but more protected in tomorrow's um, world of work, knowing that in 10 years, 50% um, of the jobs will be different or transformed. Um, so, flex security, I think we addressed the, the first part of the challenge with the recent labor law reform that was passed at the end of uh, September this year. Um, maybe a few words before I enter a bit into the, the details of the measures on the reasons why it was so important for the president and the minister uh, to introduce this uh, reform rapidly. Uh, uh, we'll maybe mention only four of them. The first one is, of course, the level of unemployment, 9.7% um, in France in uh, 2017, which is, uh, of course, uh, much too high, higher than uh, many of our uh, European partners. 25% of the youth uh, do not have a job in France. This is, uh, of course, totally unacceptable, and this is the main reasons why we needed to change things. Second is probably something around the, the French labor market dualism, 90% um, of, the, of the hirings in France today are with uh, temporary contracts, uh, which is a 
an important trend to take into account. Third reason um, was probably a, a we needed to send strong signals to um, investors and to foreign investors to make sure that French economy would remain attractive. Um, we are convinced that we have many assets, but for some good or bad reasons, um, some rigid labor regulation was or labor regulation were, was perceived as extremely rigid uh, in some areas. So we wanted to send a, a message towards them. And fourth reason, and this is a very, very important um, for us, and maybe particularly for me because I'm specifically doing and dealing with uh, international and European issues for the minister, was to send a signal to our European partners because, of course, the president is totally convinced that our future lies in Europe, that Europe as it stands, uh, as it works, needs to be changed. We have, and he started to deliver or to um, um, give some ideas about our uh, European agenda, but for that we needed to, to be more credible and to give some uh, signals to, the, to our partners to uh, just saying, well, France is able to move, uh, we're able to make reforms. So that's the four, I guess, more reasons why we wanted to do this, to do it as a f uh, um, uh, in the first place, because this is the first reform that we implemented when uh, we came into office. Um, maybe to sum up the the spirit of the reforms, three main points. Um, uh, the first one, three blocks, I would say. The first one is, of course, that the the, the labor market is more uh, flexible now. Um, most topics um, are now um, addressed at the company level, so wages, uh, working time, bonuses, uh, some um, topics that were uh, previously addressed by the law or by the sector are now addressed at the company level, which of course um, uh, allows to uh, take into consideration the specificities of each employer's and employee's uh, needs. Um, it just comes from the the fact that you can you cannot um, you don't you do not have the same needs when you're a digital startup or a large enterprise in the automotive sector, for example. Um, then employers will have the ability to better adapt and adapt more swiftly to upward downward markets. Um, and to um, negotiate on, for example, again, working time or wages, uh, depending on the business climate, uh, which is, again, very important in terms of flexibility. Th that's the first big block. The second block is uh, about, we have created a new framework for termination rules. Um, termination rules will be more secured and more um, 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 clear for employers and employees. The first uh, measure that we uh, uh, decided and was very much, uh, um, uh, sorry, uh, com commented, uh, was the capping of uh, damages in labor courts. So uh, ma many of our European uh, uh, partners had already done it previously. In France, there was no cap, so now there's one, uh, which of course gives... Uh, um, uh, brings legal certainty for employers, and and, and it, this is also more equitable for for workers. Um, the third block is about social dialogue, which is now more, uh, which is simpler and more efficient. We did basically two things. Uh, the first one is the merger of the three um, uh, information and consultation bodies. We had three staff delegates, works council and health and, and safety uh, committees. Now you will have only one, which is called the Social and Economic Council. 
And uh, the important thing uh, here is that for the first time, you will be able to address the, the topics at the same table by the same people. So it, it makes social dialogue even really more um, um, efficient. Second uh, measures in terms of uh, simplicity of social dialogue, um, it's, it's, uh, the, the law makes it simpler for SMEs and micro uh, businesses because now uh, the employers have the ability to um, negotiate directly with staff delegates for um, um, companies with less than 50 employees and directly with um, uh, employees um, with, uh, in companies with less than 20 employees. So social dialogue is just um, uh, simpler, uh, simpler to, to, to implement. And this comes from a very simple fact, is that 96% uh, uh, of SMEs um, did not have any kind of trade union representation anyway. So we needed to find a way to allow social dialogue in such structures, which are, of, of course, uh, the highest number of enterprises in, in, in France. So basically, that's um, the main uh, measures that uh, were implemented at the end of September. I think the key word here is social dialogue, because then there is nothing possible without collective bargaining and, and collective agreements. But now employers and employees have the tools uh, to implement what they need at the, at the enterprise level. Uh, but they need to to use these tools now. That's, so that's the, the challenge uh, and uh, what we will monitor in the coming months and coming years. Uh, that was the flex part. Now we're entering in the, in the second phase, which is the security part. Uh, so I will not uh, go into details now, but just to give you uh, the four areas of focus um, that will be uh, and the measures that will be implemented in the f in the coming months and everything I'm telling you now will probably end up in a law um, next spring so April or May. The first one is massive investment in skills. 15 billion euros will be available over the next five years, dedicated to long-term unemployed and needs. 1.3 million needs uh, in France. Second is uh, the reform of uh, vocational training, which basically is very complex. The government doesn't work. It's not equitable because then basically uh, the one who benefits vocational training today are not the ones who would um, um, need it the most. Uh, so we'll do something. Social partners uh, already uh, started to negotiate on this. They will be probably uh, finished by uh, mid-February, uh, so we'll see afterwards what comes out of the negotiation. Third, enhance apprenticeships, because you have only 7% of French uh, young French people apprentices versus, for example, uh, 16 or 17 in uh, Germany. Uh, so the idea here is not to copy-paste a German model on this, even if it's, of course, a very inspirational uh, model in terms of uh, training and apprenticeship, but it's to um, look at what works uh, in, in some countries, and, and uh, in this regard, I think Germany is a very good example. But basically, if you look at all uh, countries where apprenticeship is high and uh, youth unemployment is low, it's, it's the systems always lie on the same uh, common principles and at least two uh, um, the close association of uh, 
business or uh, sectors in the uh, design uh, of the training contents. And second, limit public funding. I think that, uh, again, so Germany has three times more apprentices than in France, but three times less public funds in each apprentice. So we need to find a way to incentivize uh, uh, employers to invest in training and in particular in uh, apprentices. And the fourth block and the last thing, I think I'm uh, okay, is the reform of the unemployment um, benefit system. Uh, where basically we're, we want to do two things, to open it up to some other categories of workers, so independent workers and uh, people who want to quit uh, their jobs. So uh, the details and the modalities are not uh, decided yet. And um, uh, um, sorry, and yeah, to, to, to find a way to incentivize again employers to hire uh, under permanent contracts um, to uh, have an impact over the dualism I was mentioning at the very beginning. So just a final word on the, f on the fact that everything is, I mean, all these measures I'm mentioning here has to be seen as a system. Uh, in the president's view and the minister's view, things will change only if everything is implemented uh, and it's only like this that will have an impact uh, over the um, overall of the um, French uh, social model. Thanks for this overview of the of the French uh, system. <laughs> you have some fun in the in the audience, apparently. Um, so now we can move to to Italy and to Marco Leonardi, who has been part of the team working on the Job Act, and he will give us he will explain us um, what has changed in the in the Italian uh, labor market, but also if we, if we are starting to see results uh, because it was implemented a few years ago already, and he will tell us how how it uh, moved um, the Italian labor market towards a more flex secure uh, uh, labor model. So please, I have uh, some slides. I don't need to to put them all. Uh, Show, but uh, only a few of them. I think uh, the Jobs Act uh, was put in place uh, um, in 2015, started in March 2015, so now we are uh, two years and a half uh, after uh, implementation. Uh, to just to review the main uh, characteristics, uh, the first was uh, a big incentive. Uh, in uh, terms of uh, exemption from social security contributions uh, for three years uh, for all new open-ended contracts uh, uh, signed during 2015 and uh, reduction of 40% uh, for all those uh, contracts signed in 2016. So the, the first part was a, a big uh, uh, hiring incentive. And the second part uh, was this. So a design of a schedule of compensation, uh, monetary compensation for uh, firing, uh, individual firing, uh, uh, economic and disciplinary, basically both uh, types of firing uh, in terms of uh, monetary compensation uh, instead of uh, the reinstatement uh, that used to be the case and is still the case for all those contracts there are uh, prior to March 2015. So nowadays, uh, Italian labor market works uh, in the following way. Uh, basically, 50% of people, or a bit more, still on, all, on the old regi regime with uh, 
the protection of uh, reinstatement in case they go to court and the judge uh, um, rules uh, in favor of the employees, they can be reinstated in the job. And uh, a bit less than 50% of the uh, employees instead that are already on the new regime, whereby if they get fired, they can uh, uh, choose basically between uh, a fast track settlement, one month per year of tenure starting from two months uh, to 18 months. Fast track means uh, that it's uh, uh, that you find an agreement between uh, the uh, employer and the employee and the schedule there is uh, tax free and contributed a lot to the decrease uh, in uh, uh, in the trials so litigation uh, has gone down uh, by 30% over uh, we have only accumulated uh, data so we are accumulating uh, data from uh, the uh, from uh, 2014 to now by more or less 30%. So it's uh, it's a big decrease in uh, litigation for uh, labor market issue non labor market uh, issues. Fast track settlement is the first uh, choice. If instead uh, you want to go to court, of course you go to court. And in the case uh, the the judge runs. Uh, uh, rules in, uh, in your favor as an employee, you get uh, the, the red line. So the, ba the basic point here is that the judge has no way of uh, um, choosing uh, any sum of money in between the two lines or over the red line. So the basic, uh, uh, the basic idea of this reform was to make uh, the cost of firing certain more than uh, establishing a level of uh, the cost of firing. A certain because uh, in the, at, the, at most you get the red line, so you get four months minimum up to 24 months maximum uh, if you have uh, 12 years of tenure in the firm. So basically this is uh, the main reform of the Jobs Act and it was designed uh, to uh, give an incentive to open-ended contracts, both uh, by way of uh, monetary incentives, the hiring incentives that I, that I spoke about before, and in terms of uh, certainty in the firing costs ex post. The first results, the first results, uh, then I get to, to the other, sorry that I prepared a longer presentation, but uh, I didn't have an exact idea of how it was uh, structured. The first results, uh, I think one, one important result is this. Of course, uh, these are the numbers of um, permanent and temporary employment. Uh, you see the, the blue line is uh, permanent employment. Uh, we were seeing a, a decreasing trend uh, for a few years between two thousand before 2014 uh, in 2015 and 16 we had uh, a big increase in uh, permanent uh, employment uh, and we we are back now to the pre-crisis level but we also seen an increase in temporary employment uh, nowadays uh, 
can be explained by the fact that temporary employment is always very elastic to the business cycle. But um, we believe that um, actually there is a bit too much uh, temporary employment in the sense that uh, if you do these uh, reforms uh, to give a clear message that uh, you want to be, the, you want the open-ended contract to be the most common con contract in the labor market, uh, uh, here we see uh, this is an employment growth in the main uh, European countries. You see Italy has seen a big employment growth uh, in the last uh, couple of years. Um, actually, the elasticity with the GDP growth is much higher than any other country. We have uh, slow GDP growth, but uh, relatively high employment growth. You see that we grew, employment grew more than in other countries. But you also see that in the last year, when the um, hiring incentives uh, have uh, disappeared, because in 2017 there was no hiring incentive, uh, the whole uh, the line there, the, the column is, uh, is completely blue. In the it means that uh, the, the whole employment growth happens uh, to be in uh, fixed-time contracts rather than open-ended contracts. So here we have a positive, without doubt, uh, a positive effect uh, on employment uh, of this reform, uh, I showed in the, the slide before, but we also have uh, an issue of the composition of employment uh, because we believe that, uh, <coughs> that this share of temporary contracts is too high. Why is too high? <coughs> I, without... Uh, uh, Without um, doubt, uh, there is an issue of uh, a political uh, problem. We have elections now, and uh, all reforms, uh, of course, in all elections uh, are put in uh, some kind of uncertainty. And uh, but this is not, I think, it's not only in Italy, but in particular, this was uh, a very successful, I think. Uh, reform during the past three years because it happened in a relatively quiet uh, it was not, not a single hour of strike during the implementation of the jobs act but now the elections are coming up and of course all uh, parties are uh, putting forward new reforms and uh, sometimes um, some of them are putting forward also uh, an issue of uh, going back uh, to the previous uh, uh, regime. Uh, I tell you because uh, it's all over the newspapers now and uh, it's no case, there is no way of um, uh, saying uh, anything else. Of course, we believe that this is a very important uh, um, reform that we stay in place. Uh, it's clear that elections, of course, uh, bring many new surprises every time uh, you have elections, they ha you have surprises. We are uh, trying to see whether there is a space for correcting uh, the Jobs Act in the sense of uh, putting some limits on the regulations of the fixed-end contracts because uh, we have uh, a very liberal uh, regulation of fixed-end contracts, more than uh, in France and Germany and Spain because we have a maximum duration of three years uh, when uh, I think France and Germany is, uh, is two years. 
and we have a number of renewals uh, that is up to five during the three years. You can renew the contract five times during the three years, and it, instead I believe it's a two or three times maximum in France and Germany. So we have a liberal uh, regulation of fixed end contracts, uh, which is also part of uh, this, uh, this uh, problem. If I have a couple of more minutes, uh, two minutes, but this is main, the, main, uh, the main, uh, issue. The main issue, I think the most interesting part is this. Of course, uh, the Jobs Act, without showing you the slides, uh, the Jobs Act is made of three legs. This is only the first leg, and I think the most important. Um, the second uh, the second point was the reform of the unemployment benefits, the enlargement of uh, eligibility. And uh, the third leg is active labor market policies, uh, where uh, we are finding some uh, problems in implementation because uh, this is uh, a constitutional a competence that the constitutional constitution gives to the regions rather than the state, and of course. Uh, um, we tried with the referendum uh, in uh, last December, but um, it didn't work out. And now we are still uh, with, the comp with the regional competence that has to be put in uh, line uh, with uh, a reform that was thought uh, to be on uh, the central level. So we introduced a national agency, a national uh, instrument, national policy for... Uh, carrying out uh, active labor market policies uh, and now we are facing uh, of course during the elections of course these problems are exacerbated but uh, we are facing uh, difficulty in uh, putting all the regions in line uh, to implement this reform thank you very much thanks marco uh, let's go to germany now uh, where werner where will uh, can you please pass me the uh, where Werner will discuss, in fact, the labor market reforms of the 2000s. And uh, given that Germany is now an inspiration, as we have heard uh, before uh, Garon saying that, uh, we want to know what went well, what went bad, if there are some shortcomings of the labor market reforms in Germany. Of course, we all know that the unemployment rate is, uh, is, is great and that uh, many countries would, would, would like to have the same. But what about dualism of, uh, of the labor market uh, and, and other features? Thank you very much also for the invitation and um, maybe we can um, somehow turn on uh, yes, the screen. Um, I want to be brief, um, but I think one, one thing that we should uh, bear in mind is um, that the reforms in Germany somehow occurred um, 15 years ago. Um, so that means um, somehow in an asynchronical uh, fashion compared to the, maybe the French and the Italian ones. But uh, Germany was in a state of crisis in the early 2000s um, after the new economy. Uh, bubble and we had a, a rising unemployment rate between 2000 and 2002. Um, we were um, not able to meet the Maastricht criteria at the time. So this basically uh, triggered a couple of uh, reforms um, that I would uh, still uh, like to get back to you to show it to you uh, in a minute. That way. Where is it? Uh, okay. Okay. Great. Um, so I have to shoot at him. Okay. I see. Um, great. Um, so what what is basically happening? Um, the first thing um, that we should bear in mind is um, that for the um, permanent contracts, basically no legal changes were implemented. Um, so this basically continued, uh, with the exception of a couple of minor issues. But there was a strong 
change in the system of industrial relations, uh, declining uh, collective bargaining coverage and also decentralization, a bit similar to what France is currently uh, going to, uh, but at a lower level of uh, organizational coverage. And the second thing, um, I think this is uh, important to explain some of the uh, changes in the German labor market was uh, uh, deregulation of non-standard types of employment in a way quite, quite typical, I think, for many continental European countries, including uh, France and uh, Italy nowadays, um, together with an activation policy that was implemented in Germany after 2002. Um, from, from a labor market perspective, um, this has basically affected um, the, the labor supply, so mobilizing labor supply was the main issue here. Uh, through uh, stricter um, uh, availability criteria to some cuts in benefits uh, and uh, to a more efficient and more effective um, active labor market policy. Some changes in the benefit system, but not necessarily a, 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 a cut in the um, coverage or an expansion in the coverage of unemployed by benefits. Uh, so this is still one of the highest rates uh, in terms of coverage that we have in Europe, still to be found in Germany. And um, this um, deregulatory approach um, to um, st basically stimulate uh, labor demand at a time, mostly um, to be expected um, through uh, the deregulation of temporary agency uh, work. This was one, one of the uh, key topics uh, to bring unemployed or inactive people into the labor market and um, short uh, time, uh, part time uh, uh, work uh, called a mini job um, where uh, people could uh, earn up to 450 euros without having any uh, deduction of taxes and social security contributions. So this somehow uh, was uh, uh, designed uh, to stimulate um, small uh, jobs, uh, bringing in uh, additional people into the labor market, but at the same time also solving some of the labor cost issues in the private service sector. Um, and uh, also encouragement of small um, self-employment. Uh, reorganization of employment services, I think this is also basically in line with the mainstream uh, of, of that uh, period, um, making the public employment service more uh, 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 effective, um, organizing it around a certain uh, performance criteria and also involving uh, private uh, service providers. Um, additional policies to increase labor market participation Labor, female labor supply, in particular, with better uh, care policies and um, the removal of early retirement. So all these things, I think, have made a contribution to a situation where we now have a higher employment rate. Um, what I also uh, want to stress uh, uh, every time I talk about the German model is um, that uh, standard employment is still dominant and this is stable. So it has not been eroding um, after the reforms. Um, but what we have seen, in fact, is an increase um, in uh, non-standard types of employment. Um, and I would say um, there's still an issue regarding uh, the quality of some of those jobs, but also in terms of the uh, probability of making a transition from a non-standard type of employment to a permanent uh, type of employment. This is particularly true for uh, agency workers and for those uh, marginal uh, part-time workers. Um, I would also argue that uh, for the fixed-term contracts, um, the issue is less problematic than maybe in France or in Italy with transition rates of 45% uh, or so from uh, one uh, year to the next. Um, but uh, in fact, I would uh, definitely say uh, that uh, the German labor market is now a bit more dualized um, than it uh, used to be. But um, the, the positive side uh, of this uh, change is definitely um, that the labor market has become more permeable or more open uh, for uh, unemployed and also for inactive 
people and this you can see in this graph um, where we can see this growing, uh, let's say, uh, wedge of non-standard types of employment basically at the expense of unemployment and inactivity. So I don't have to go into details here, I think. Um, and this we can, of course, also discuss a bit more in detail regarding the temporary agency work. Um, um, there has been some research into the actual functioning of agency work in Germany, pointing in particular uh, at the fact that in, in, in the manufacturing sector, this has taken some of the regular employment. Yeah, so there was a, a, a limited uh, uh, piece of uh, crowding out occurring where agency workers could somehow work side by side with um, direct employees, but under different working conditions, including also different types of collective agreements and, and, and pay um, schemes. Um, this uh, raised some criticism later on that I will uh, come back to uh, in a minute. The same uh, basically um, could be observed uh, with the marginal part-time uh, work uh, where this uh, was uh, most um, pervasive, uh, in particular in the um, hospitality sector and in the retail sector. Uh, there, there was some replacement of um, fully socially insured regular employment by this uh, new uh, highly flexible, but in a way also cheaper types of uh, employment. Um, um, so, and this basically affected uh, different types of occupations quite asymmetrically. I would uh, in, in particular highlight um, the top uh, right uh, quadrant of this graph, uh, showing you um, those uh, occupations uh, like salespersons, for example, where there was an increase in uh, jobs available at the same time an increase in non-standard uh, uh, jobs in total employment in their respective occupations. I think this is uh, somehow the typical response uh, that occurred in the German service sector that generated uh, most of the jobs after the mid-2000s up to uh, now. So um, the situation uh, I think could have uh, stopped here. Uh, the, the, the whole discussion about Germany was a story about uh, somewhat uh, more dualizing uh, labor market, but something has changed um, in, in the current decade. I think this uh, should not be underrated and gives um, at least some idea um, how policy uh, responses can look like. Um, we have seen the positive development in, uh, in employment, um, 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 uh, declining unemployment, um, but less so in terms of long-term unemployment. This is one of the issues that we still have to observe um, um, there was also increasing criticism regarding um, the growth of atypical types of employment um, and low pay. Um, so this was one of the issues um, that uh, became more and more prominent in the late 2000s and early 2010s. Um, at the same time, uh, trade unions uh, changed their strategy and were much more in favor of having a statutory minimum wage. This was not an issue for the trade unions until very recently, but only with the growth of the low pay sector and their limited capacity to organize um, the labor market, um, they started to ask for a statutory minimum wage. And this was introduced then in 2015. Um, so in a, in a way, one can argue this is somehow a, a policy response or a, a policy reversal compared to the more flexibility-oriented uh, liberalizing reforms of the early 2000s. Um, and um, somehow, ironically, also in 2017, um, some of the deregulation that was implemented in 2003 regarding the temporary agency work sector was also uh, reversed um, uh, in terms of maximum assignments and in terms of uh, a delayed um, equal uh, pay clause, for example. 
um, with uh, some exceptions uh, in terms of uh, sectoral agreements that are still possible. So, uh, to summarize, one last slide. Again, let's try. Um, yeah, I think um, the positive thing is uh, mass unemployment could be overcome, uh, employment could be stimulated, in particular in the service sector. Um, this was not possible under the old system. Um, we have uh, seen this somehow a uh, dual uh, path to flexibility um, internally um, through changes in, in collective agreements and in company practices, and on the other hand, um, a reorganization of uh, non-standard employment and, and uh, labor market policies. Uh, last point um, that I would like to stress is that this is not a one-way street uh, going uh, to ever more uh, flexibility, but uh, at some point um, there's also a policy response uh, given a, a widespread public uneasiness with some of the outcomes, and this I think can be taken as an explanation for what has occurred over the last uh, two or three years in a much more favorable economic environment. Thanks very much, Bernard, for, for this uh, good explanation of the German model. Um, I pass now the floor to, to Phil, who will talk about the UK uh, labor market. And as part, in particular, I think, about the, um, the problem of productivity that you have at the moment in the, in the UK. Thank you very much. Um, I'm already aware how different the UK is from all the others, from what we've heard. The last time I was in Brussels on a work venture, where I was with the Prime Minister, Tony Blair, and we were here to do a speech at the European Parliament. And we were here in the hotel with a speech that I'd written, which was, and I can say this, just about the dullest speech anybody would have ever been forced to sit through. It was full of protocols and piety about the European Union. Britain was about to become the president um, of the European Union at that time. And then that day on the floor of the Parliament, um, somebody called Jean-Claude Juncker, made a really withering speech about the British contribution to the European Union, in particular the budget, which had just been scuppered uh, on his view by the British. And so we tore up my boring speech, and we wrote a completely different one in a few hours. And that speech has two notable elements, which I think are relevant still today. The first is the main refrain of the speech, which was a biblical cadence. The people are blowing the trumpets on the city walls, but is anybody listening? And that was a direct challenge to the European Union on its labor markets. Uh, it turns out in Britain, the people were blowing the trumpets on the city walls, and the governments of the day were not listening. The second part of the speech, which is notable, is that it was an attempt to answer the accusation that Britain had an Anglo-Saxon model. The British labor market was fundamentally different from the European model by choice and by design, and the inference was that the British thought their model was superior. And we wanted to answer all of those things in the negative, to say we did not think of ourselves as being an Anglo-Saxon um, labor market, and we did not, uh, the following inference didn't also apply, we did not think our model was superior, but it was certainly different. And the speech was an attempt to define what we said was a British social model, which of course is extremely extensive. The 1945 welfare state was an extremely strongly um, formulated and, and structured attempt to provide social protection, uh, largely successful. The reputation for having an economy which is more intent on flexibility than on security, of course, is owed to the liberalization of the 1980s under the Thatcher government. So, of course, there's something to it. 
We're not denying that there was uh, a, a liberalization which was very explicitly done along American lines. The government of that era very decidedly looked to the United States for its inspiration. And some of the consequences of that were a, a huge freeing up of the labor market from the point of view of, of an employer, certainly. Um, it, there was an, after an initial huge burst of unemployment, there was, it was easier to hire people. But of course, inequality, income inequality really took off during that decade in a way it had never done so before. There's one, a couple of other really important differences i just like to highlight with the UK, which are independent of any government's identity. Um, and one of which is, as I listen to the other speakers, I'm, I'm conscious how little of a conversation takes place in Britain on these questions. There's less of a bargain. Before I was involved in Demos, I used to run a think tank called the Social Market Foundation. And we were absolutely inspired by the German idea. So I'm very aware of the notion of the social market, not where the social is not a caveat upon the market, it's a compound term. The market is a social institution which has social consequences. Now that's not a familiar argument in Britain, which has a very polarized political culture. Uh, there are advocates of the state and there are advocates of the market. And we're also a very centralized state which means that even on things like wage rates across the country, it's very common for them to be centralized. There was a long argument in the labor movement between the trade unions and the Labour Party about whether a national minimum wage was a good idea or not. Because, of course, legislation underpins wage rates, but it also takes the trade unions out of the conversation. So that bargaining and that, that sense of collaboration doesn't is not extensive in Britain. We do not have the labor market institutions that are common, for example, in Germany. And that's true on the employer's side, and it's true on the labor side. So the participants in the conversation, which make a good organic process in some countries in this labor market, are not developed in the UK. Nevertheless, the Blair years were full of attempts to add protection to the labor market. Trade union recognition was made um, compulsory. The uh, national minimum wage was established. There was a lots of childcare legislation, uh, tax credits were added to as a supplement to wages, there were huge education reforms, welfare state entitlements were reformed as well. And it was a very active government uh, in the labor market. The crash of 2007 is a much bigger event for an economy like the United Kingdom than it is for most economies for the obvious reason that a greater part, proportion of British GDP comes from financial services and a very high proportion of our tax revenues come from that source. So as a consequence, the response to that crash was proportionately greater in the United Kingdom, which meant, given we by then had a coalition government dominated by the Conservatives, what they call austerity, which is to say drastic reductions in public spending, where the greater part of the burden in those reductions was taken by in the welfare state, which is to say some of the supplements to the labor market. And so that has had a huge impact over the last uh, decade and a great deal of social protection that was built up over time in the labor years has been reduced or in some cases lost. That's put the UK in a position where we have nevertheless got very high employment because the virtue of the flexibility that was produced during the 1980s remains there. And we've gone through a very tough economic period, but we, it has not been a period in which unemployment has, has risen highly at all, despite lots of predictions that it would. 
Uh, Britain has its highest ever employment rate at the moment in its history. And that's in spite of, or it may be because of, in part, very considerable immigration historically. So Britain's employment rate has been a great success. However, that has come alongside a lot of low-status, low-pay work. So it may be that these two things, you have to have the two of them. We haven't yet figured out a way to get the one without the other, but that's what we've got. That's what we've produced. There's a lot of people in precarious work, a lot of people in work which is of a lower quality than they would wish, a lot of people who are in part-time work who don't want to be in part-time work. Flexibility is great if, that's, if it's providing what the people want, but there's a lot of evidence that British people would like to work more than they are able to at the moment. So that's not a policy success. We've also seen in Britain, we're much further down the road, the, U the United States has traveled in the shift of power from labor to capital. And that is seen in the share of the social product taken in, um, in markets by shareholders. But it's also seen very significantly in the fact that the average British worker has not had a pay rise for a decade. And the Office for Budget Responsibility in our annual budget a couple of weeks ago pointed out that that situation is likely to persist for another decade. So that would then be 20 years in which the average worker has not had uh, a real terms pay rise, which would be unprecedented uh, and obviously is finding its way into our politics. That is, I would say, the most significant fact in British life, let alone in the British labour market. This is a position we're in, and we've also now got a government as a result of our um, decision to leave the European Union, which is essentially unable to act because the government, in its wisdom, decided to have a general election to secure a, a, a firmer mandate for its negotiation position uh, and was probably rewarded with a much weaker position than it started with. So we've got a government which is finding it very difficult to do anything other than stutter towards the exit of the European Union. So there's not a great deal of reform going on in the United Kingdom on anything at all. There's two things which are in the system, which are in this field. One is the huge reform to the welfare state known as universal credit. Well, I say it's huge. It began as huge. It's rapidly becoming very small. It was an attempt to wrap up lots of benefits into a single code uh, with the intention to be to improve work incentives. As the austerity has really scuppered that ambition, and the more they take out of the pot, the less the incentives are sharp to enable people to get back into work. And the second thing which introduced last week, or announced last week again, is a very tepid and not very inspired industrial strategy. Uh, the government is desperately searching for reforms which require no legislation, because without a majority in the, in the lower house, it's very difficult to push through any legislation. An industrial strategy could be enacted without the need for votes in Parliament, but there's not a great deal in it. There's not a great deal of enthusiasm uh, in the governing party for it. There were some, yet again, a few warm words about technical education, which I would say is the single biggest reason for our Britain's terrible record on productivity, and we have never addressed this. And the missing part of the 1945 welfare state was the proposal that we would have a series of technical colleges, and they never appeared. So Britain educates its top 10% of its population better than anywhere else in the world, and the bottom 40% probably worse than any other developed economy. And at the moment, there's no great political desire to do anything about that. So. Finally, where, where does that leave us? Last, just a couple of days ago, the Commission, the Social Mobility Commission, 
um, which is the, a body which oversees the government's attempts to uh, increase the equality of opportunity in Britain, all four of the commissioners resigned, saying the government has no interest in doing anything on this. And they had a very interesting uh, report in which they, sh they identified 65 hotspots where equality was very low. And of those 65, 60 of them voted to leave the European Union. In 60 of those places, the people were sounding the trumpets on the city walls. And in the end, I think the decision of the, Europe of the United Kingdom to leave the EU is a verdict not on the EU. It's virtually nothing to do with the European Union, but it is a verdict on what's happening in British labour markets. Thanks very much, Phil, for, for this uh, statement. Um, now let's go to, to Maria, because uh, as you have seen, uh, it's true that all those reforms that have been taking place in Europe, in the UK in the 80s, in Germany in the 2000s, in Italy in 2015, and now in France, it seems that they have succeeded in, uh, in increasing employment, but we also see that they have some shortcomings. We have been discussing about increasing dualism, increasing in, uh, in short-term contracts, increasing inequality, low wages. So I, wa I wanted to have your views on if you think that this uh, reform have really transformed the labor market of those countries into something that looks like flex security, like the ones that we have in, in Denmark, or if they are still very far from that model. And uh, what could be done in those countries to, to, to push uh, the labor market towards this uh, flex security model? Okay, thank you very much. Now, I have to say, I was in Denmark last week uh, talking to the Danish trade unions, and uh, there the most popular person was Macron. Because, uh, obviously, so uh, Macron and his team has been traveling quite a lot to Denmark to figure out what's Denmark all about, what are they doing. And I haven't seen any French person being so popular since the Queen married the French Crown Prince, right? So that was kind of a discovery for me. So now, I mean, what can we expect from the labor market reforms that have, have, gone, uh, have, have taken place? I think, you know, there's the German where you can actually say something because we've got some research. You know, we've got the Italian where it happened, but only half of it happened. And then we've got the French, which is just rolling out right now. So, you know, it's, it's kind of a very difficult. And then the UK, where you can have a discussion about also whether these reforms actually generated the employment in the UK. But going back to, to Germany, now there's, there's quite a lot of, a big discussion within German academia as well to, you know, what did actually generate the employment, yes or no. And some scholars would say, yeah, but you know, it was the heart reforms that did it. And I think no scholar would say that had nothing to do with it. But in general, there's also uh, quite a lot of research that shows that, okay, that the timing of the reforms was what was important at this sense. Because it happened while there was a big external demand, global demand for the kind of goods that Germany produced. Germany, Germany was taking advantage of the enlargement, so they were outsourcing, they were uh, you know, off, uh, offshoring and so forth. And so they were just very strategic in terms of positioning themselves in the global market and were able to hinge themselves on in a rather rapid and good way to the global demand. And so we had kind of a simultaneity between the, the reforms and the growth in employment. Uh, so, and at the same time, what we also had in, in this sense was that the, the trade unions and the, the employers in the sectors that were export bound basically start, started negotiating on other issues, okay? So th there were a lot of other kind of factors that did that we had this simultaneity between labor market reforms and um, and the, the fact that unemployment went down, okay? so. Employment per, cap, 
per head has gone up to a certain extent. But if we look at the volume of work, it has not gone up in Germany. And I think this is true for most countries in the European Union, actually, that on the volume of work, we're stagnating to, to a certain extent. So did the labor market reforms then actually create more employment? Did it actually decrease uh, the unemployment? There's not one factor that's contributing to it. And I think that what's really important in Germany was at the timing of it. There was a, a demand engine on the outside that was actually able to pull employment and unemployment down. And I think that the situation of France and Italy is not quite similar these days. You know? it, it is another context. So that my, my first point is in terms of what we can observe from Germany and then uh, what we think would happen today would be slightly different. Now with the UK, the, 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 the reforms happened before, they happened in, in the 80s, and it completely transformed the labor market in, in the UK and you know, gave it a reputation of being this very poor, low quality. To a certain extent, it was exaggerated because it's not, you know, there, there's a big heterogeneity within the, in the labor market. But it has given spark to, as you say, a, a very subdued or constant wage for a large part of, of the UK population. And this is creating a lot of problems uh, internally in the economy. And the bargaining position of workers has been immensely decreased. So, so, there's, so what's the next move that's gonna kind of, you know, ensure that there can be some kind of negotiation or some kind of discussion about where, what work organization is about, where the company is gonna head and where this economy is gonna head. It's very difficult for somebody like me to actually see these days, right? So. And I don't, I don't necessarily think there needs to be a trade-off. You said you haven't quite figured out how there is a trade-off. But I think we do have certain economies where the trade-off has been much less pronounced between employment and, and low, I mean, and, and, and precarious employment, and Scandinavian countries being one, of them, being one of them. And I think one of the issues with regard to this is that EPL is not an obsession. You know, if you look to a lot of the Nordic kind of uh, countries, the EPL is not the obsession. What is the obsession is that we need to keep productivity gains and productivity growth more or less growing because that's what's going to be, that's going to what's paying the welfare state. This is what's going to pay for the wages and so forth and so forth. So you have quite a lot, a different discussion, which is one, a discussion about training. It's a discussion about investment. It's a training about a discussion about lifelong learning and so forth and so forth to have a productive workforce. And then you get into kind of an, another bind. And this also then cha shapes the way that you put forward your active labor market policy and the kind of money you're ready to invest into it. This then brings me to the Italian case and the, and the, the French case, because as our French colleagues said, you know, it's the flexibility part of the, the reforms that have been kind of put into place. And now we get to the security. Italy did all of the reforms, but they haven't quite figured out how to carry out the security part of it. So the employment service, public employment services, which is extremely important in terms of being able to help unemployed into, into employment. To have active labor market policies that are actually not just pushing people into uh, precarious employment uh, via incentive structures that basically push people into anything, but actually into an active labor market policy that it looks at education and training and so forth. So this part, is very expensive, huh? and it requires that you build up institutions, that you have institutional learning, institutional in, uh, innovation, and it's not just something that's going to spring out of ground, especially when you're in a very, very difficult situation in your labor market and you're under f uh, financial constraint. Okay, Because you need to go in and invest heavily. You need to admit that you're going to fail on some points, and you need to do the innovation and the institutional learning that takes it. And to do this in a, in a space where you don't have money, you know, it's difficult, right? It's just difficult. So I think that, so, so those are some of the, I mean, so to, 
the, the Danish, when, when Denmark, well, it's, it's a very, very old system, right? But they did actually do a qualitative jump, uh, also with regard to how to decrease uh, unemployment and to maybe reformulate the unemployment benefit system. But the year that there was an agreement, tripartite agreement on this one, the Danish government actually went from a, uh, a public surplus to a deficit of 5%, which meant they said, okay, we'll jump off the cliff, but we'll push the economy into growth and we'll do it together. So it was, it was kind of, and I think this is what we need to, I mean, for some of these reforms to actually have some kind of chance, if we look around, the growth, economic growth is of vital importance. And you can't, I mean, if you want to do these reforms without some kind of push uh, in terms of getting the wheels to move, you will end up pushing people into precarious uh, situations. And then afterwards, you're going to have to do like Germany is to figure out how do we get ourselves out of this situation now, right? And so the minute jobs is still there, but the minimum wage actually did a part of the trick, right? Because once you got in a labor, tight labor market, you get minimum wages up, then people are starting to be pushed out of the minute jobs. And this actually basically suits everybody. The, Germany doesn't want to kill the money jobs. Nobody really likes them. But you know, minute, you know, the minimum wage basically pushed a large part of the, some, some, not a large part, some of the people out of it. On the temporary work agency, I think in 2011, there was another kind of attempt to kind of re-regulate the temporary agency workers. At this point, the reaction from the companies, and this will get me then to my last point, switched from using temporary agency workers to self-employed. Because the fact was that the temporary agency workers became more or less as expensive as core workers after a certain period. So the, the strategy of the, of the firms was to move into a segment of the labor market that was still cheaper and as flexible, right? And I think that's a point that we need to learn from, is that we look across European Union today, is that we see some of the attempts to kind of re-regulate or try to, 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 to reinstate that the standard employment relationship is the employment relationship that we actually want to look into, is very difficult. It's very difficult because you can put into place the laws, but the companies and the organization need to follow it, right? On the other hand, we see that we open up the spaces for some kind of, for using flexible, more kind of atypical contracts, whatever it can mean. This is being used, meaning that deregulating seems to be a path that is being used, but the re-regulation is a kind of a more difficult path to put companies down. And if we then look at, how companies organize themselves. So what kind of companies do we have across Europe? What are their characteristics? How do they organize work? How do they interact? And how do they perceive their human resources? We see large differences across the European Union as well. So there are several studies that have been put out in terms of what can characterize functioning of work, uh, of, of the work organization. And here, another one, another difference that we see as well in terms of how the, the, the labor law or how the, the, the way that security is organized kind of fits into what the way the companies work is we have the learning companies. So the, the companies that, you know, use employee innovation, that talks, well, consults that have employee-driven uh, employee innovation where uh, there's a lot of autonomy in the work and so forth. They are also the countries where one can see the flex security very prominent. Okay, so... So there is some kind of complementarity between the way that company works and the way that you can organize your, your labor market institutions. If you then kind of say, okay, what will this mean for Italy and for France? You see, for Italy, 
this is not what characterizes most companies. Companies are organized in a very different way. You know, they function in a very different way. So how are they going to be able to engage with these new labor market configuration? For me, it's an open question. I would be very interested to see down the line a positive effect, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure because if a company organizes itself so they have routine tasks and so forth, they don't need, uh, you know, uh, a workforce that has the, the experience of the company, that can innovate and so forth and so forth. They, they just they need another kind of workforce. So I think that combination is very interesting. And we go to France, it's in the middle way. So can it work or can it not work? I think the jury is still very much out there. And I also think it very much depends on how the social partners in France will be able to engage into this reconfiguration of their industrial relations, which is not an easy issue as well, especially when you are in a low growth and, uh, and in a situation of fiscal constraint. Thanks very much for, for, those, uh, uh, for the statement. Um, before I give the floor to, to the audience, do you want to react to each other? So, or I can give to the... To, yeah. Okay, then um, just uh, yeah, um, so many questions. I'll start with uh, Mr. Zair. Um, Yeah, please t tell your name and, and your affiliation. <laughs> it was not the hard for reform. It was uh, the wage which then started already in the 80s. Macron is also popular in Sweden and Norway. Uh, I don't know why, because he's paying some lip service to the Nordic model, but what he's doing at home is the opposite of the Nordic model with the decentralized uh, bargaining structure. In, in the Scandinavian countries, we have central agreements, and you can bargain at local level to better agreements or less positive agreements. But it's not the Macron model. I read the flex security, but what I see is more flexibility and less security. Flex security is 11 letters. It seems that flexi is only five of them, and seven is on security, but it's the wrong picture. It's given us more insecurity in the labor market, and uh, uh, we are still waiting for the security part of it. That's my comment. Thank you. Thanks for that comment. Um, I'll take a round of questions and comments. Uh, I see Francesco there. Uh, Francesco Vadia from Bruegel. And this is very much a follow-up uh, to what has uh, just been said. Do I interpret the general message that is coming from the panel, that we have done the flexibility part, and now we need to do the security uh, part? In Europe, maybe except in Scandinavia. Uh, the security and the growth. Uh, and the growth part. So uh, that would be an important conclusion that would come uh, from, uh, because so far the emphasis has been flexibility, flexibility, flexibility. And now if you say, no, 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 okay, that we have done, now let's move to security, that would be an important message coming from the panel. Thank you. Uh, there was one question coming from Bernadette Segal there and André also, and then... It's not really a question, and it really follows what, what has been said. Uh, I think there is something very basic. Security is first for workers, the financial security they have when they are unemployed. And if you don't give them this security, you get what you, you have in, in the UK, a political destabilization, 
and uh, we, you know, saying the EU is all the uh, all the the problem. Um, I wish I could have passed this message to uh, President Macron, but I think. Uh, it's too late. I will have to have a direct line with him. But I think that is absolutely basic. If you are made unemployed, you need to continue to pay your uh, rent to uh, you have children. And this financial aspect is, seems to be completely forgotten. Uh, 20 years ago, when I heard for the first time the word flexicurity, uh, it, it was very clear that the Danes, they had, I don't know, 70%, 80% of their, their salary. And now the, this is off. So, you know, be careful of the political consequences of what not you, what we are doing in your not you. Of course, it's not personal. Yeah, Andre Sapir. Um, I mean, there would be much, uh, much to say. I think the the, the panel was uh, was fascinating, and you know, I, I was thinking of you know what I wrote uh, back in 2004 about the efficient and uh, equitable uh, system, and which were not. And um, I think one dimension, maybe that uh, you know, not to make a long uh, speech. I think one dimension perhaps that, that is missing in the discussion uh, is to look only at the labor market dimension uh, rather than at the social uh, models of which obviously the labor market institutions is a very important component. But I think there is another one uh, which I think is important in those countries, Scandinavia, but as well Austria, as well the Netherlands, you know, where you have had this both equitable and, and efficient uh, systems, it's education. Um, when I look at the, at the UK, uh, the UK was, and still is, and, as you said, sort of an efficient system. It's an inequitable but efficient system. I think that the basic inefficiency, the basic inequity in the UK is about education. Uh, so people do enter into the labor market with very, very inequitable inequitable of uh, human uh, human capital, and I think that is really a, a, a big difference with with Scandinavia, where you have also very high employment rates, even higher than than in the UK, but people are uh, endowed with much more equitable uh, human capital because the education system, which I think in Scandinavia is a fundamental part of the social models. For most of us, what we understand by social models is labor market institutions. And I think the great uh, difference with Scandinavia is that they understand that education is fundamentally a part of the, uh, of the social model, not just the labor market institutions. I think that's where really other countries are, are not doing a good job. I was happy to hear uh, the uh, the advisor from uh, from from Paris to you know to speak a little bit about you know what's ahead Training. about uh, about uh, education, uh, but I think it needs to be much much more fundamental reforms there. Yeah. Hi, uh, Matt Steinglass from the Economist. Um, I had one question that I wanted to address to Maria, which is uh, one of the other uh, received wisdoms about flex security um, is that Denmark has it, 
but uh, another another one of these sort of questioning art articles that I've read recently was a piece by Ronald Janssen where he his where he tries to do a sophisticated analysis of job security guarantees and finds that Denmark actually is about at the OECD average. And I just wonder, are we working with a uh, with a myth that isn't really accurate about uh, about the basis of the notion of flex security? Um, and then secondly. Uh, um, I wonder if anybody. We didn't hear much talk about uh, about migration uh, and uh, especially about posted workers. Uh, does do anybody on the panel think that Macron's emphasis on uh, the posted workers question is a distraction? Is this a real challenge to uh, establishing common uh, labor market norms across Europe, or how important is that? Uh, just yeah, Guntram, and then also on the first row, and then we'll take answers. In. Yeah, I, I wanted to, Guntram Boy from Brügel, I wanted to follow up to what André also said about um, basically education. And I think the, the one key question, and Maria, you, you mentioned it, is productivity, of course. And the Danish and the Scandinavian model is interesting because they have a very high productivity level. And so in, in such a high productivity environment where people are qualified, of course, moving from one job to another one may be much easier than... Um, in an environment where the product general productivity levels are actually quite low, um, qualifications are low, but also the capital is quite low. So so perhaps um, I also felt that sort of this link of productivity uh, is a bit missing, um, especially in the Italian presentation. I was wondering whether we can hear a little bit more about, you know, what can we do to increase the productivity so that people actually find uh, an adequate job that pays um, pays a good salary. After another round of questions, because there are so many questions, but before, let me give the floor back uh, to, to the speaker who wants to start. Okay. I just respond to your points about the UK. I, I agree with you very much that the inequality in educational qualifications is very important. As I, I said myself, is with the missing part of the 1945 settlement. However, I don't think it's entirely the answer. Let's just imagine for a moment that Britain had exactly the same educational outcomes as the Scandinavian countries. Would that therefore mean that a British settlement was the same as the Scandinavian countries? No, it wouldn't. For this reason, our capitalism is considerably more unequal than theirs. The British government is in fact extremely active as an agent of redistribution. It's just that the thing it's redistributing is significantly more unequal as a starting point. And that's to do with the mix of our economy. It's the nature of our economy. The UK government and the United States government are more active to redistribute wealth than most European governments, if you just look at the redistribution at federal level. But that's because they start with something which is absolutely um, sort of dreadful. Um, and so there's something about the nature of our economy as well, in addition to the... We exacerbate that problem with our educational uh, output, but I'm not sure we would therefore entirely solve it. We need to do something about the nature of our economy as well. Now, whether or not you think the educational reforms would lead that change, perhaps they would, perhaps they would, um, but it's not obvious necessarily uh, that they would. Second point is on migration. I don't know about whether uh, on, the, on Macron, but I, I should have mentioned migration more in what I said about the UK because it's absolutely crucial, of course, in what's happening there, that immigration has been an enormously important political subject over the last decade. 
vastly in, in excess of the incidence of migration, but nevertheless, it's been very, very important. And one thing which, again, where the UK differs in a very significant way from the other countries under discussion is that our welfare state has lost almost all of its contributory element. I think this is crucial with respect to migration because politically, if you can say to the public that new entrants to the country will not be in receipt of significant welfare benefits because they haven't paid in, because they haven't paid their insurance premiums, as it were, then you can settle a political argument. Whereas in the UK, we can't say that. It remains a myth that migrants are taking huge amounts of benefits. I mean, I'm not, I'm not suggesting for a moment that it's a fact, uh, but it is nevertheless a very troublesome political question. And the demise of the contributory principle, which is now almost negligible in Britain, is, um, I think, a, a quite a serious problem. And one of the ways in which we ought to respond to our departure from the EU would be to try and turn that back, to try and become a bit more European in the, in the nature of our welfare state. The, the irony is we're Anglo-Saxon, but on exactly the opposite issue from what we usually dis, uh, thought of as being Anglo-Saxon on. Okay, about Danish myth. Um, I mean, when, when we talk about employment protection legislation, we always refer to the OECD indicator, right? And that this is the indicator that we use. And I mean, there's quite a lot of research around that shows that it's not very accurate, it's not very good, but you know, this is what we've got. There are a certain, well, there's some alternative indicators that shows that actually the UK and the Danish workforce is better protected than indicated in the OECD indicator. But this, um, this indicator, which is located at, I think it's Cambridge, um, is not as, it doesn't count for as many countries as the one at OECD, so we keep on using the OECD. Now, it is true that in Denmark, uh, the, uh, the employment protection is, is negotiated, it's something that's negotiated, but it's still, it's still if fairly lower than in most European countries, okay? So, but one has to look at how relevant it is because in terms of separations, most of them are quits. They're not layoffs, okay? So when it's a quit, and then I think that's valid for most European countries, is that most of the, of the separations for companies, they're due to quits and they're not due to layoffs. And this goes for Denmark as well. So there's a, there's a high uh, turnover, but it's a, it's a turnover which is due to, to quits. And in that respect, the employment protection legislation doesn't really matter in terms of cost for the companies, okay? But it does matter, and I think this is a really important point to make as well when we talk about security. It does provide bargaining power for the worker. And I think that when we decrease, when we decrease employment protection legislation, not only do we decrease kind of the costs, but we also decrease the bargaining powers for, for the workers and for trade unions. And, and that can be problematic because you shift the power balances on the labor market in a lot of different ways, you know, by uh, lowering the social uh, social protection, by lowering EPL, and so forth and so forth, and you really shift the power balance within in the labour market to an extent that you end up a little bit like in the UK, where there is no more power. Okay, and so when it becomes problematic, how do you want to rebalance that one? You know, wh what is it that makes to, you need to do to actually to rebalance the power balance between? Um, you know, capital and labor to a certain extent. And to, in my, to my eyes, you know, we, we kind of underestimate this effect and the implication it has for the way that labor markets um, function. 
So I don't think that the Danish, I, but I would give you, I mean, I would say that Danish flag security maybe is becoming a myth because there's been quite a lot of reforms lately or a couple of very important reforms lately on the security side. They have half the unemployment benefit duration from four years to two years. That's you know kind of halving. And this was in the midst of the crisis. And secondly of all, in the social assistance system as well, they have cut the benefits as well. So they, on the security side, they're kind of on the benefit system cutting uh, on the benefits. So you could say that you know, there is some recalibration of what was once known as the flex security model. That's a bit too much uh, for a question. Um, I would like to answer uh, two questions, uh, the, the productivity question and the education question. Uh, Andresa Pirla. I think uh, you are exactly right, uh, and I believe that most of our analysis is too much focused on the labor market and too little focused on uh, education and the transition from school and university to work uh, and the human capital endowment that workers uh, develop during uh, formal education and uh, afterwards. And I believe that most of the differences in the performances of the labor markets are... Uh, to be looked at uh, under this perspective as well. What we, I think, uh, as for the transition from school to work or uh, university to work, uh, um, Italy is, a, is traditional in a weak situation because uh, traditionally, culturally, we always have thought uh, of uh, the formal education and the and the job market has to separate uh, entities and still now this is the case it's, uh, it's intrinsically uh, in, the, in the minds of everybody uh, it's a cultural trait of, uh, of the country what we have uh, been doing uh, this year uh, is we, we are shifting the incentives the hiring incentives on the youth. So we are moving uh, billions of euros uh, from uh, hiring incentives uh, to everybody, which we did in the, the start of the Jobs Act, as I explained before. We are focusing only on the youth. And this is hard politically because uh, the youth uh, usually don't vote. <laughs> or if they vote, they vote against the system. So it's uh, politically, it's a hard uh, decision to make. Uh, we did it. So this uh, this budget law is focused on uh, on hiring incentives on the youth, and particularly with this view of uh, the transition from school and university to work. So they, we are we are basically subsidizing the first open-ended contract, the first in the sense uh, your first uh, job after school or after university. And uh, the idea is exactly what. Uh, I think what you said, it's uh, trying, of course, this is only the monetary part, uh, hiring incentive. Around it, uh, there is uh, <coughs> some measure on uh, the dual uh, the incentive to the dual apprenticeship. We have a strange type of apprenticeship. We, are, we have a an apprenticeship that it's rather a first contract, a first uh, contract work, uh, work, contract in the job market separate from schooling. 
we have a weak uh, dual uh, apprenticeship system we, we, which we instead we are trying to to finance uh, in this budget law and we are uh, trying to financing uh, we are financing and we are trying to develop in a better way the technical uh, universities uh, we have uh, we have very little effort we have put very little effort so far on the technical uh, universities we had uh, in the past very strong technical high schools during the 60s and 70 up to the 70s then uh, when we moved from uh, a situation where most of the population uh, had a high school degree to the need to have uh, to provide a university degree to everybody we lost uh, this advantage on uh, technical schools and we never gained uh, as instead germany did uh, um, and also france has a very, has a very strong uh, two types uh, two types of uh, uh, university system that is the formal university and the the technical schools we never develop the technical schools at the tertiary, edu in tertiary education is a very weak point and we are financing it now so the we, we are taking care of this transition the issue of transition from school and university to work uh, we are taking care uh, in this budget law with uh, with a combined uh, uh, type of measures with at the center these incentives productivity is a very hard uh, thing to to tackle and uh, I believe there is very much confusion uh, everywhere as to what to do, apart from the fact that everybody knows that uh, more education or a better quality education is the driver. Uh, but then, uh, of course, uh, there are many other drivers that are very hard to tackle. And probably there is no single uh, thing that you can do to increase productivity in the short run. You have to take uh, measures that probably give benefits uh, in the course of uh, 10 years or, or more. Um, yes, um, I, I would like to first um, make a small comment on what Maria said about the German issue. I, I think this is a, a, a bit of a general insight, um, saying, well, if you start to regulate some sort of uh, non-standard type of employment, you also have to observe, let's say, um, unintended side effects regarding other types of uh, non-standard employment and there's certainly a strong issue about um, in a way equalizing uh, both flexibilities and also securities across different types of employment. Empirically however um, what it was not occurring in Germany was an increase in self-employment so this did not happen as a response to temporary agency work becoming slightly more important or more costly. Yeah? So this um, um, did not take place, um, but there was somehow a, maybe a heavy, more heavy reliance on uh, supplier firms that were not un operating under the collective agreements of those uh, main uh, clients, yeah, and therefore a bit cheaper. Uh, the other thing um, that I also find very important when talking about um, this flexicurity uh, debate is, I think, two things. Um, one is um, that it is probably not easy to design a perfect system, but one has to rather um, go through a relatively protracted, sometimes contradictory sequence of reforms, responding also to some problem pressures or perceived problem uh, pressures um, that just occur maybe as a side effect of some earlier reforms, and then to have to somehow adapt and, and maybe trying to improve the system over a longer period of time. 
and at the same time, one has to observe um, that the balance between risks and uh, also security um, is definitely not uh, equal for all uh, types of uh, uh, or all groups in the labor force. So there's also an, an equity issue. Um, maybe it is inevitable in a situation of high unemployment and, and maybe strong employment protection for insiders um, to start questioning dismissal protection at some point and to liberalize temporary agency work uh, first. But then in a, in a second phase, um, then we have a discussion about expanding maybe the coverage of social insurance and maybe also re-regulating uh, uh, fixed term contracts, for example. So I, 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 I'm, I'm just taking a bit uh, note of the political economy and maybe also the economic conditions under which all these reforms um, take place. Okay, thank you very much. I'm, I'm sick. I'm really sorry. We, we, it's already three, so I won't have time to take a second on the column. But thank you very much for coming, all of you. And thanks to the speakers uh, for joining us and accepting our invitation. It was a great panel. So thank you very much for your insights. Bye-bye. Uh,